trust everybody from Michigan is finally happy. Because of the snow, because of the weather. What? I have a uh, modified prophecy from the Lord. Spring is coming. Right? 45 more days. Ah. I think we're going to have an early spring. I think things are going to turn around. <laughs> okay, we have a young scholar to lead us in prayer this morning. Dear God, thank you that we could have John here and help, help him to teach well and through you. And thank you for everyone that could come here through the snowy weather, and please help the weather to improve. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Everybody said amen to that one. <laughs> All right, good morning. Nice to see you, and I am impressed at your faithfulness to come through this weather to come and study with Jesus and the Bible. Um, we're studying angels, as you know. And uh, to this morning, we want to start out want to give you a little analogy, and I think you have a handout this morning at the top in color that shows you a prism. So I have my prism that sits on my desk. Anybody have a prism at home? Yeah, they are awesome. And uh, we know that what they do is what? The light, the pure light, goes through them, and this is called refraction, and it busts up all of the uh, or distributes pure light into the range of colors that light actually exhibits and holds within itself. Uh, Isaac Newton was one of the first people to play around with prisms, and uh, he found a lot of joy in it and led to a lot of great findings. Um, in this hand, I'm holding what? The St. John's Bible, uh, Gospel, Gospels and Acts. Uh, which you know is here in town. How many of you have gone to see it yet? All right. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass it around so that you can kind of see. Uh, of course, it's much better to see it in uh, real life, I guess you would say. Let me see. Wh which book are we focusing on? Luke today. So Let's f They have these beautiful artistic paintings as well. So there's the painting for Luke that they did, and then obviously the calligraphy. Now, <coughs> here's the analogy that I would like you to understand today. Um, these are the scriptures uh, by their own testimony, by the testimony of the Lord Jesus, by the testimony of the apostles, by the testimony of church history, these words are regarded as inspired by God. And of course, there's a range of viewpoints that Christians hold on what that actually means. And that's not the point today. The point is, is that uh, down through the ages, Christians have regarded the words of God as coming from God and therefore conveying truth to us. So this analogy that I want you to understand today is um, the Bible would be sort of like a prism. And the pure light would be 
Bible would be the prism, if the Bible was the prism, the pure light would be, yes, God, or Jesus, or the Holy Spirit, or the Trinity, however you want to put it. Um, and what happens is, is that God, uh, and if, when I say the prism is the Bible, we have to qualify that. The, the prism is actually the humans who wrote the Bible, right? And that is a complicated theological notion in and of itself, which I don't want to get into, but of course humans were the agents, the human agents, that the light of God, the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, inspired them to write down words that were inspired by God. And it's interesting, like when you study all of the different books of the Bible, you can see the humanity of the authors, correct? For example, uh, today we're going to be studying Luke. Who remembers what Luke did for a living? He was a physician, yes. So, uh, and who remembers, uh, like, uh, John? Uh, what did he do for a living? John the Apostle. He was a fisherman. All right, so no, no um, social categories implied in all this. I'm just making analytical statements. John was a blue-collar dock worker, right? Luke was a classically trained, educated Greek intellectual, the only non-Jew who wrote anything in the Bible. 66 books in the Bible, two of them are by a Goyim or a Gentile. That's Luke. Now, I remember when I first took Greek, I don't know if I ever told you this before, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but you always start, when you start studying Greek, with John, particularly 1 John, and why is that? Uh, short chapters. <laughs> uh, no. I mean, I, that's true too, but it's very basic. It's baby Greek. It's like uh, elementary school Greek. A simple vocabulary, sim simple sentence structure. And uh, so I remember I was living in Chicago at the time when I first took Greek, and I would ride the, either the elevated trains or the bus to back and forth to school, and every day this 35-minute trip I would take, I would crack open my Greek New Testament and sit there and read the first letter of John. And I thought I was the bomb. I'm reading Greek. Oh, it was so exciting. And of course, I had to read so slow because I was a baby, baby Greek reader that it really helped me because I actually started slowing down and paying attention to the words. Beautiful. So then second year Greek came. And... Um, uh, we go into class, Greek syntax, Greek exegesis, and the professor has selected, guess who, as our textbook, our Greek book, our, our Bible book. Luke. Luke! So the first assignment is, translate the first four verses of uh, Luke and bring it tomorrow and we'll talk about it. No problem, because I've been reading Greek all summer. I have dug into, gotten into the gospel, or letter of John. Sit down that night to start translating, and I was like, What is this, Egyptian? <laughs> I had no idea what I was reading. I was like, I never saw these words before. I never saw these configurations before. And uh, three hours later, when I finally got done translating the first four verses, having to ha look up virtually every word, I was like, Wow, now I understand. 
Yes, God inspired the words, but God worked through the person. And that differentiation of humanity is reflected in the scriptures. So that's a cool thing. That's a nice theological idea that God works with humans and takes us where we're at and still gives the truth through us despite or whatever our particular abilities are. Now, having said all of that, so this is what? The Bible implied in that is humans wrote it under the inspiration of God and so it refracts the light of God into all kinds of different colors. So, you know, John is one type of color and Luke is another color. Then it gets even cooler. Uh, not only does the, Bible, does the Bible have this human dimension to it, but it also has many topics that you can study. Like, give me some topics that you could study from the Bible. Angels! angels. <laughs> <laughs> How appropriate. Yes, angels. Now give me another one. Faith. Faith. So you can do a word study on faith or a theological study on faith and... Love, yes. any men? Did you say? Yeah. Oh, sin. <laughs> no, same difference, right? <laughs> um, whatever topic that you want, the Bible has information on it. Now, here's where the sticky part comes. Um, the Master said, John five thirty nine through forty. And you search the Scriptures. Because you think in them, you have eternal life. This is what he said to the Jewish leaders of his day. They dominated the scriptures. They had them memorized. They knew them like the back of their hand. You search these things. You study them. You master them. Because you think in these words that you're going to find eternal life. But the master said what? Who knows the rest, the rest of the verse? But these, better look it up so that you don't think I'm a cult leader. John 5, 39 and 40. This, you search these because you think you're going to find eternal life in this book, in these words. The second part of the verse reads, Aha! So let's put the verse together now. You search these because you think you're going to find eternal life in this book, but these words, this book does what? It actually points, points us to Jesus. Jesus is the point of this book. And so whatever topic that you happen to be considering and studying, the refracted rays that come out, unless you follow those refracted rays, those different colors, and come back and then get in touch with the pure light of Christ that's shining through that book, inevitably what's going to happen to us is the same thing that happened to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. You're going to start tripping off on what? All of the pretty colors of the Bible. And you're going to study these things as if they're independent of. Could happen. Happens all the time to people. If you don't trace it back to the fact that these colors are pointing us to Jesus, you can start to turn the Bible into something that it was never meant to be. Does it make sense to you? So when we read the scriptures, what we want to try to do is to say, okay, well, look at all these pretty colors. How awesome. And today, the color of angels. We're trying to find out what the scriptures teach about angels. Fine. 
But follow that beam of light back and ask yourself, how does this relate to the Lord Jesus Christ? How do these stories point us to Jesus Christ? If you keep those two in harmony and ask the Holy Spirit to help you in that process, then you won't turn the scriptures into something that they were never meant to be, which is a, like a manual for information only. It's not that. It's a Christological book. And those of you who are familiar with the Logos Institute, you know that what the heart of the Institute's trying to do is promote Christological knowledge, meaning that everything should, must, point us back to Christ. And if it doesn't, then it's kind of a misuse of the Bible. So, with that said, I want to tell you what we're going to do in the rest of the weeks that we have. Now, today we're going to study the Incarnation. Uh, if you remember, those of you who are here on 1223, December 23rd, the stated topic was angels at the birth of Jesus. And guess what happened? <laughs> we had a great class, I thought, but we never got to that topic. <laughs> That's okay. Today we will do the incarnation. Even though it's not Christmas, it's okay. We'll study what it means that angels were involved with the incarnation. Next week we're going to study the temptation of Jesus and how angels were part of that and also how that leads us to understand how angels are part and parcel of the experience that you and I have. Because one of the premises that's embedded in the notion of Christological study is that whatever Jesus went through and whatever is pertinent to Jesus is in some way pertinent to us who follow Christ. In other words, he's the prime example. He's the template. And so whatever is true in Jesus' life experience is in some way going to be true in ours. Not in every way, but in many ways. Does that make sense? So we'll study how did angels relate to the temptation of Jesus? How do angels, uh, and Pam asked me, Pam Moretta asked me this morning, are you sure that you wanted to have this title erect an evil? Because there's a book titled Elect and Evil. That, my professor wrote that book, but I, uh, I changed. I, he doesn't know about this, but I changed his title. Erect, what do I mean by that? Meaning the unfallen ones, the ones that did not fall. The evil ones are the ones that fell. So we're going to find out in the temptation of Jesus that both e elect or non-fallen or erect non-fallen angels were involved in the temptation, and also the evil ones one was involved with it. And we'll see how that related to Jesus and how it relates to us. Then uh, the following week, we're going to study how angels were involved in the passion of Christ. And what's the passion? Suffering. The suffering of Jesus and his death. And implied in that, of course, I'm going to incorporate what else? Resurrection. His resurrection. And not just that. We'll follow... What follows after the resurrection? Ascension. The ascension. And angels were involved in all dimensions of Jesus' triumph. So we'll see how that relates to Jesus and also how it relates to us. And then the last week we study angels. I uh, just called this transformation. We're going to go into the book of Acts and some of the letters. Because <clears throat> these three are about Jesus when he was in his first body. The incarnation. The book of Acts and the letters are about Jesus when he was where? In his second body, 
the body of Christ, which is all of you. And so the cool thing about the story of Christ is it doesn't end like a historical novel. It goes on. It started with his resurrection. He came to live inside of people, and he's been living inside of people ever since. And the story goes on. And angels were very involved in the lives of the apostles in the book of Acts, very involved in the lives of the apostles when they wrote out theology and taught Christians, very involved in the book of Revelation. They're just filled. And there's no reason not to believe what? That if they were involved in the first century Christians, they're involved in our lives because they're part and parcel of the reality of God's revelation. Okay, having said all that, you want to ask any questions? Does that make sense? Shy today? Yes, sir. gender in a human sense for the spiritual beings. Yes. Now, in, in the Bible, I believe it's true that, that the angels, when, they're, when a gender is mentioned, they're all male, or at least they all have male names. Are there women angels, or is this just a convention that we've happened to name the angels in the Bible by male names? Wow. Okay. Um... I want you to turn to the book of Matthew. I want you to find chapter 21. I think. Actually, I think it might be in chapter 19, but my eyes are... Well, I know it's in there. I just can't find it right this moment. The Master said, in heaven, regarding the topic of marriage, divorce, and blah, blah, blah. Some of you will find this for me and help me. 19.5? Thank you so much. No, it's in 19, but... 1914, thank you so much. In the next life, he says humans are going to be like the angels, neither giving in marriage nor being married. So that's both a distressing thought and also a consoling one. Human marriage lasts in this life. In the next life, when you... Jack, when you see Phyllis in the next life, <laughs> but everything's going to change. You're not going to look at her any longer as a male and a female. Brian, do I have the right text? 22, 30. Thank you. Sorry. This is called a synaptic break. My brain doesn't work right. 2230. In the next life, humans will be as the angels. They neither give in marriage nor are they married. On that text, the history of the church has studied and come to the conclusion that angels are transgender and not in the modern sense of the word, meaning beyond gender. Now, on a technical point, C.S. Lewis, who followed Plato, 
on a te technical philosophical point. He said there's a difference between male and female and masculine and feminine. And uh, so in some sort of cosmic sense, they may have dimensions that we would kind of associate with masculinity and femininity. But in their inherent beings, they're not primarily like we are. They're beyond it. So that means angels don't do what? They don't procreate. Some imaginative Christian authors have uh, concluded that just like human beings um, sometimes have like an intense spiritual connection. Have you ever had that with a person that you almost know what they're thinking? That you've been so close to somebody that you almost don't have to talk? Uh, married couples experience this, maybe sometimes Christians when they're very close to one another uh, and really in the spirit. It's kind of like you're just zoned in and you kind of know what's going on. Uh, some people have then said, well, angels being greater than us and being closer to God and the ones that aren't fallen have some sort of capacity to uh, interpenetrate one another spiritually, not physically. This is an intercourse, but they can join in a confluence of mind and spirit and experience some kind of oneness with one another. But that's not sexuality. That's spiritual oneness. So that's, that's the, uh, both the biblical and the historical Christian church teaching. They don't marry. And some of you might even be thinking in your mind now, but it, doesn't it say in the Bible that angels procreated with women? Genesis 6, the sons of God made, saw that the women of, the uh, women, and the daughters, of men. daughters of men were really hot. And they said, well, that's the modern translation. And they <laughs> came and, and procreated with them. If you, if you care about that, uh, give Cindy your email, and I will send you uh, a study on it. Uh, the burden of the church has been, no, those sons of God are actually humans who fell in love with the daughters of Seth, the race, the part of the human race that turned away from God. So the Sethites were the ones that fell away, yes? Yes, so, so thank you. So just extrapolate that out. Angels have much greater power and capacity for spiritual uh, congress than we do. And so, yeah, they're, they're operating on, a, on a, like a telepathic level. Uh, and I don't mean in an evil sense. I mean they just know stuff. Okay, um, but there's, that's a minority position that angels copulated with humans and made these creatures called the Nephilim. It's a minority position. You know where it really comes from? The book of Enoch. Uh, and has anybody ever read the book of Enoch? Yes. Do you remember that? He goes on and on and on about the angels procreating with women. And, uh, but of course the book of Enoch was weighed in the balances by the Jews and said to be what? Cool story. Nice to read, go ahead and read it, but we're not putting that in the Bible because we don't really think it was inspired by God. And so down through the ages, 
the majority position in the Christian church has been, no, angels can't procreate with humans, because why? They don't have DNA. Right? They're spirit beings. They don't have any DNA to transmit to another human, so how can they procreate and produce a monstrous hybrid baby? You want more? Down through the histories of the church, many Christians have testified to, and many people have experienced what is called the effect of incubi and succubi, which is really gross. Incubi and succubi are fallen angels that masquerade as humans, and they come to humans and create some sort of holographic, imaginary sex experience with the human. Anybody ever hear of this? You have, because incubi and succubi. Incubi are the ones that uh, masquerade as male angels, males. Succubi are the ones that masquerade as females. And so many people have had these experiences that some kind of being came to them and they had some sort of weird uh, cosmic sexual experience and it always turns out bad. But the thing is, there's no body there. It's done in the head, in the mind. They have supernatural power. Yes? Uh, no, that's what you can have when you go to Las Vegas. They have a shop there, Incubi and Succubi Experiences. I'm just kidding. Uh, LSD can't, no, any hallucinogen will enable you to open up the gateways to your mind in a way that, yes, you can more easily have these kinds of weird experiences with angels. That's well known, too. But uh, it doesn't need LSD to, to do it. Happens, or are you saying some people say Anecdotally, it, it is reported okay. by many people down through the ages that they have had these weird experiences with what appears to be some kind of a creature that comes at night and they have some weird form of holographic sexual experience. And it's widely distributed through the literature, succubi, incubi. That's how the church leaders identified it. But it's wicked, it's, it's horrible. It's not something that we would ever want to have. So these are the, these are the range, to, to answer your question, are they male, are they female? No, they're, they're beyond gender. They don't pro procreate. They don't have sex. But, but if you trace it back, and this is the last thing I'm going to say on it, if you trace it back, how, do, how were humans eventually made according to the book of Genesis? What's the, what's the coolest thing? In the image of God. In the image of God, keep going. Male and female created he them. So almost everyone agrees then that the notion of masculinity, whatever that is, and the notion of femininity, whatever that is, is actually in, installed inside of God. So when God made a, a, the male, God took something of that core masculinity that's in God and put it into a carbon life form. And then God took something that is inherent to God that we would call feminine, that's in God, and put it inside uh, another carbon life form. And that's how you get male and female. It, have you heard this before? Okay. Yeah, I, I'm not a cult leader. I'm telling you that this is what down through the ages people have come to. So if God did that for humans and we in, 
some sense reflect in our carbon-based life form something of God as a male and then something as God as a female. And then when you come together as marriage, the Bible says that that's, that's what you need to get the, the full-blown effect. You need both of them together to get the image of God in its fullness. So my point is, if that's true about humans, then it would also be true about angelic spirit beings because they also are created how? In the image of God, meaning they bear God's characteristics. They're made after God, except they're like on a higher life form. They're a higher life form. And uh, so their, their masculinity and their femininity, whatever that is, is um, it's not sexual, but it's bound up in whatever is in God that's feminine and bound up in God of whatever is masculine. And I, I wouldn't presume to know what that is. It's just... What's the essence of femininity? Feminine. The essence of masculine. Don't even want to touch it, right? <clears throat> I don't blame you because you get lost in... What happens is, is that you tend to get lost in what we experience as masculinity and femininity down here on this low level, and we try to project that up into heaven and into God, and that doesn't work. Yes. And I know you had your hand up to it. Now, the Bible tells us that we're made in the image of God. But the Bible doesn't tell us any more about what that is, does it? I mean, um, we're, all of what you're saying sounds like an early Christian trying to figure it out, but not necessarily based in Scripture. Well, uh, sure, if you want a scriptural text, go to John 4.24 really quickly. And what did the Master say that God is? John 4.23.24. The Spirit. Aha! God is Spirit. That means God does not have a body. If God doesn't have a body, then let's click off biological inference what that would mean. God doesn't have... Genitalia. That means God doesn't have what we would call. We know, we know, we get that. No, no, I, I'm not going to go any further. I just mean, you know, like uh, a sexual, secondary sexual characteristics. God's beyond that. But whatever is masculine and feminine inherently is still in God as a spirit, but not as a secondary sexual characteristic. And if God doesn't have secondary sexual characteristics and doesn't have a body, then that would mean what else is true about God? Oh, 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 what? It doesn't die. He's not subject to the decay of a carbon life form. Uh, think about it. This would solve the problems of the human race. If God doesn't have a body, then God doesn't have what? <laughs> no skin color. Therefore, no ethnicity. Therefore, God's beyond that. That means, like my, some of my young Malone students would actually tell me in the book of Genesis when I would ask them, what do you think it means to be made in God's image? And it would wind up eventually that they'd get around to saying that God was white. <laughs> a white boy. Of course, that's because they've seen a lot of pictures of God on church temples and, and stuff like that. And when you look up, you see God and God's what? 
a white guy. Really? No. God doesn't have a body, so God doesn't have any of those characteristics. So, therefore, if that's true, then, and Jesus said it, so that would mean then that the characteristics that are embodied in the image of God are what? Not physical. They're spiritual. So then we... Again, spiritual, and I, I probably shouldn't have brought that thing up about Lewis, because um, it might comp- complicate things and confuse some of you. But what he was saying was, is that if you have a, an expression of masculinity on a, in a carbon life form, and you have an expression of femininity in a carbon life form, and the Bible says that, that somehow that relates to God, because we're made in God's image, then that means that the essence of femininity and the essence of masculinity are somehow embodied inside of God. I just don't want to define what femininity or masculinity is because I'm going to get in big trouble. Everybody that does try to define it gets in big trouble. But you guys won't answer me when I say, what's the essence of masculinity? What's the essence of femininity? And we get all these goofy cultural constructs. I mean, go to Israel and meet an Israeli uh, chica in the uh, uh, Israeli forces carrying around an AK-47 and you can see their biceps and uh, uh, try to get into a fight with one of those Israeli women and you'll find out what... uh, You're going to get confused because you're going to (laughs) think this isn't a female. Because they teach those female Israelis to disable somebody in 30 seconds or less. They have a particular Israeli fighting style. They can disable somebody in 30 seconds. So go over there, tough guy, and fight with an Israeli a military female. And you'll find out that it's pretty hard to define what female and male is. But whatever it is, it goes back up into the essence of God And because God has those qualities inside of God, whatever they are, God distributes them down into human beings, and we have these life forms called male and female. And I'm just suggesting to you that the angels are somewhat like that as well, except the difference is they don't have bodies, and so therefore what? Yes, sir. And that's why my professors used to always say, uh, all analogies break down and don't make them walk on all fours. Has anybody ever heard that statement? <laughs> analogies, analogies are simply analogies, right. No. No, no. No, they're just tough females. Uh, Revelation. In the New Jerusalem Coming Yes. They speak about there's no need for light. Because the, there won't be any need for the sun because the Lord, your God, will be your sun. God's on. Yeah, your on. light. So it says Jesus is the lamp, if I remember. Mm-hmm. So I would say when we're in a new body, we'll have the capacity to be able to see, I suppose, Father God. 
Yes, you will. Where we'll recognize Jesus, I suppose, from our human memory of what we've been taught. Listen to this passage. John says, And it has not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall see him as he is. So, yes, when you leave this carbon life form and you get transposed into, the, into your next form, you will be able to interact and see God to the degree that a creature can. Right now, it would fry our brains. What does God say in the Bible? No one can see my face at the present time because why? You're too much. It would fry your brains. So, <clears throat> again, this is another thing that's interesting about angels. Therefore, angels become what? They're made in the image of God. So when you encounter an angel, you're encountering, in a sense, what? An expression of God. And just to, to make my point even more clear, every time they appear to somebody in the Bible, the first thing they have to say is what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why? Because they're like from another dimension, another world. They're glowing. Okay, so you've got the angels that are supposedly doing things with humans. How does that relate to the birth of Christ? How do, thank you. That's great. Let's go to that. All right. Let's pick out some high points from the handout that you have today. Preparation. Luke 1.17. They are intimately embroiled and entailed in the story of Jesus' birth. And we can make legitimate inferences about them. And of course... I gave you all the passages on this handout, which you can look up later. We only have time to hit the high points. What does the angel, Gabriel, who appears to Zecharias, you know this story, he's in the temple performing services as a priest. Gabriel appears to him, makes the announcement that Elizabeth, your wife, is going to have a son. And what does the angel eventually get around to in verse 17? talking about John the baptizer, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What is the angel referring to, Gabriel? What's he talking about? Yes, he's talking about John the baptizer. What does he say that John the, the, John the baptizer will do? He will go before and he will prepare the way to get a people ready for the Messiah that is to come. Uh, is there anything in the Bible that talks about this? Oh, yeah. Where? Your cheater Bible headline says I don't you don't have your notes. That's okay. I gave them to you. It's in the book of Malachi. This angel, Gabriel, is in effect condensing and collating and collapsing the essence of the Malachi prophecy that before the Messiah comes, that God is going to send a messenger to get the people ready. And if you go to Malachi chapter 4, if you want to look it up, well, chapter 3, 2 talks about the messenger that will come. Yeah. But if you go to chapter 4, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. 
Now, this is a big thing in Jewish thought. Have anybody, has anybody ever gone to a Passover dinner? A Seder feast. Did you notice an empty chair? Who's that for? Elijah. Because Elijah has to come and introduce the people because Elijah was the first great prophet. So he's going to end, of course, in the biblical story. Elijah did not die, did he? He went straight to heaven. He was transposed. So the Jewish people thought that the literal Elijah was going to have to come back before the Messiah came. What they got was not the literal Elijah, but they got what? Somebody just like Elijah. Do you remember what Elijah wore? A leather loinskin. Do you remember what Elijah ate? Do you remember where Elijah lived for a period when he was running from uh, Jezebel out in the wilderness? So John the baptizer, what did he wear? A little leather loincloth. What did he eat? Locusts and honey. Um, Where did he live? In the wilderness. What did Elijah do? What was the great thing of Elijah? What was his great epic moment? Uh, yeah, but what did Elijah, the, the literal Elijah, do? His great moment. His encounter with the prophets of Baal. He, he spoke again. Right? Yeah. And he says, look, I got a great idea. Let's have a test case. You guys built an altar, and you pray to Baal, and have fire come down from heaven. So they cut themselves, they wail, they, they pray, nothing happens. Then Elijah says what? Before, you light the, before the fire comes, pour water on the, on the, on the wood. Do you remember the story? Yeah. Then he, they did it once, and that's not enough water. Pour more water. Now I want, you to, I want to make you understand that this is soaking wet wood, and then Elijah said, Yahweh, something like do your thing. Yeah, and fire comes down to heaven, and it explodes in fire, and everybody says, ah! Yahweh is God. And so he, at a moment of crisis in the nation of Israel's history, when they were falling into Baal worship, he turned the people back to Yahweh. So Gabriel comes and tells Zechariah, your kid is going to come how? In the spirit and power of Elijah. In other words, the angel is interpreting by God's illumination the text from Malachi and saying, no, it's not going to be the literal Elijah that's going to come. It's going to be somebody that's like Elijah. And it's amazing in their similarities. Does it make sense? So therefore, we know now what about angels. We can learn just one thing from them. They're messengers. They understand the Bible. So I would put that down as a big red mark in all of your books. And you're going to start messing around with angels and talking to them? Make sure what? That the one that you're talking to understands the Bible. Because they will always tell you, if they tell you anything, something that's congruent with the scriptures. And they will always tell you something that's not only congruent with the scriptures, but how do we start the whole class off? They'll point you to the scriptures, but they're also going to point you to the light. 
So what is John's role? Remember what the Gospel of John says? He was not the light, meaning John. John was not the light, but he came to do what? <coughs> to bear witness to the light. The light is Jesus. All right, so that's one beautiful thing I think that we can learn from them. They know the scriptures, they give messages, they point us to Christ. All right, now let's go to the next one, Luke 1, 26 through 38. There's three verses there, 131, 132, and 135. This is Gabriel coming to Mary. What's interesting about verse 31 is, you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. What's interesting about that text? What do parents always do? You name your children. This case... The angel says, no, you're not going to name your own kid. I'm telling you the name that you're to give this kid, and his name is what? Yeah, okay, so why is that interesting? In Hebrew, Yeshua. In English, Yeshua. What does it mean in Hebrew? Savior. God is my Savior. Yahweh is my Savior. The book of Joshua is Yeshua. So the person Joshua in the Bible is actually, we would call him Jesus if we knew him today in English. Jesus is named Savior. The angel thus knows what about the destiny of this person that he's announcing to Mary. He's going to be the Savior. So, they have a cosmic view of God's plan of salvation that God has been working out. And so, first they go to Elizabeth and Zacharias and say, your son is the fulfillment of the Malachi prophecy. You're going to produce a child that's going to go forward in the spirit and power of Elijah and prepare the way for the Messiah. And then six months later, they go to Mary and say what? You're going to bear the Messiah, and you're going to name this child Yeshua. So that tells us what? The angels know they, they know the plan. They know God's plan of salvation, and they're pointing people back to the scriptures. I think another interesting thing that I like about this angel is, why does the angel happen to mention to Mary when she's like, well, that can't be... I've never known a man. Uh, once he explains, well, this is going to be a supernatural birth, and God's going to come, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and conceive within you this child. It's going to be a unique birth. Then the angel says, and oh, by the way, your cousin Elizabeth is already in her sixth month. Why does he tell Mary that? Let's just think logically for a second. Oh, she, Elizabeth was way past childbearing age. In what way? They will, look, it's happening to her. It's going to happen to you, too. I mean, by, Elizabeth would have been showing by then. Yes, she would have been. And so the angel sends Mary, this little teenager, whose like, mind is getting exploded because she just got told what? You're going to have a baby without natural means. So the angel tells Mary, hey, by the way, 
Uh, your cousin Elizabeth, you remember the one that can't have a baby, the one that's really old, the one that's filled with shame and sorrow because she's a, 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 a motherless, uh, what's that called? Um, a barren person. Uh, she's lived with all this shame. Your cousin is going to have a baby, and Mary would say what? What would Mary say? Your 70-year-old uh, cousin is pregnant. It's impossible. It's impossible. Yeah. And so what does Mary do then? She runs to check it out. She goes to see. When she goes and sees, indeed, Elizabeth is pregnant, what happens? Yeah, the baby, but what happens inside of Mary? This, that's a pretty weird birth. <laughs> Maybe this is really going to happen to me too. Then Mary sings her song. Then, then, then that's really when Mary gets illuminated and sings a song that is very similar to the song that Hannah sung in the book of Samuel. And you might say, well, how would a little teenager know the Bible like that? And the answer is what? Her cousin, Elizabeth, is married to Zacharias, a priest, and the priest would know the scriptures, and she stayed there with Elizabeth for three months, and what do you think they did besides eat bagels and cream cheese? <laughs> they drilled into the scriptures, so I know it makes, the Bible condenses everything, and it makes it all jammed up, like uh, Mary walks in, the, John the baptizer leaps, uh, Elizabeth makes this prophecy, and the next thing, Mary runs into the bedroom, and blows out the, magnific the Magnificat. No, not really. She stayed there, studied the scriptures. So what did the angel do for Mary? And I, I want you to learn from this in terms of your own experience. What did the angel do? B believe me on my authority alone? Sent the person back to a place where the supernatural event that is being predicted, the Christological event that is being told to her, she sent, the angel sent Mary back to a place where confirmation could be occurred. Hey, by the way, what does the Bible say about confirmation? One witness is not enough to establish the matter of any testimony, or one testimony is not enough to establish the truth of any matter. Every matter must be established how? two or three witnesses. Angels know what? The they know the rules. They know the scriptures. You, you and I need to know that because an angel, if you have one appear to you, is always going to do it in a way that doesn't make you completely dependent upon them. Why not? Because the good ones are gentle with us and they frame up context for us so that we can get confirmation and confirmation and confirmation and slowly grow into it. The bad ones, wow, find 2 Corinthians, uh, Corinthians 11.14. Here's what the bad ones do. This is how you can distinguish. 2 Corinthians 11.14. Satan does what? masquerades as an angel of light. As an angel of light. I bring this up 
I'm trying to contextualize it for the 21st century. Remember last week? We, st- we looked at what? All the movies and all the books. And uh, I've, I've watched many of these movies. I told you I do this as my uh, preparation for things. I've read many of these books. In the movies, angels never do, curiously, something that they always do in the Bible. They never do what? Send you back. They never send the people back to the Lord Jesus. That's how you can know a good one, an erect one, from a fallen one. This is making sense to you? Okay. So this is what they do for Mary. Ah! Next one. Go to Matthew. 120 and 121. Angels are our assistants, and they help us when we get placed into situations that are almost unbearable. They can become assistants to us to help us have faith. Hey, uh, you know, I know we read this story over and over again. It's become so uh, embedded into our culture and our consciousness. I think we've lost the power of it. Um, Your teenage betrothed um, I, I hate to say fiancé, but that would be about basically it. Your teenage betrothed fiancé comes to you as a male and says, you will not believe what happened. <laughs> Joseph says what to the story? I mean, he's a nice guy. The Bible says he's a very nice guy. So he didn't want to disgrace Mary, so he was going to secretly, behind the scenes, break the engagement, right? So, what has to happen here? Verse 20 of Matthew 1. After he considered this, considered what? Breaking the engagement. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and he said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is something that angels do for human beings. They assist us in taking those steps that if we were just left on our own, we would find it very difficult to do. Uh, They assist us in fulfilling God's will. They are the messengers of God that encourage us to go into the supernatural realm and believe that God is working in and through us. Next one, and I like these. Luke 2, 8 through 20. I've got three verses there. Uh, Let's focus on 2.11 today. The charming story of uh, them announcing to the shepherds. Why does the angel appear to the shepherds? Why does the angel appear to the shepherds? Now, uh, shepherds in those days, what, 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 what status did they have in society?
These are people that are living a very brutally difficult existence. They're sleeping in the wo- out in the woods, out in the fields. Uh, they're hanging out with what all day long? Sheep. Uh, that, that means they have to hold them, cuddle them, hug them. You remember the famous Psalm 23? The Lord uh, is my shepherd. He does what? He an- anoints my head with oil and he helps me. And have you guys ever hung out with sheep? Have you embraced them? Have you cuddled with them? I mean, like real sheep, not fluffed up in a, in a farm show, but I mean, like, yes, I mean, this is like hanging out with dogs or something. I mean, you're out wild animals. These people would, yes. I had a farmer, a woman who was, a, her dad was a farmer, and if, if he spoke, the sheep listened. If other people spoke, the sheep listened. Okay, now that's one, something that Jesus that's pointed part, out. Yeah. They, 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 are very, they, are, they are very attuned to their core master. In that sense, they're like dogs in the sense that they bond to their primary but I'm just trying to get to you that doesn't it seem odd that out of all the people that uh, an angel could appear to and announce, hey, the Messiah, the Savior of the world has come. He appears to people that uh, smell bad, look bad. (laughs) Why? Well, notice what the angel says. Uh, In verse 11, today in the town of David, well, what town was David? Bethlehem. What did David do before he became king? He was a shepherd. Now keep thinking here. What did God promise David? Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. Out of your body shall come descendants, and they will always sit upon the throne of Israel, a perpetual covenant. To be the king in Israel, you have to be a descendant of David. So why does the angel come to the shepherds in Bethlehem and make this announcement? Because what is the Messiah supposed to be ultimately? He's the cosmic shepherd. So what the angels do is they create a drama that illustrates what? The truth of the scriptures. The Messiah has to be born of the seed of David and is born in Bethlehem because that's David's town. And he appears to the lowliest because the master came to do what? Save his people from their sins. All right. John? Yes. Have you ever been in a, in a uh, sheep pen? Yes, I have. They're, they're greasy and they stink. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yes, they are. Uh, now, the last uh, thing that I want you to look at before you fly away today is Matthew 2.13 and 2.19. Matthew 2.13 and 19. This is called protection, and this is another role that the angels do for all of us. You recall that after Jesus is born, uh, Herod gets wind of the fact that a prophecy has been fulfilled that some sort of king has been born in Bethlehem, and he does what? Go to Bethlehem, and he says, kill all of the babies two years and younger, because it took time for Jesus to be born, for the message to travel to Herod, and so just to make sure that he got the 
got them. He said, find everybody that's two or younger and kill them all. So Jesus' life is at risk. What happens? The angel comes and says to Joseph in a dream, run. And he tells them, you know, go down to Egypt. Uh, By the way, that fulfills a biblical prophecy as well. In the book of Hosea, it says, out of Egypt I have called my son. So the angel coordinates with scripture, tells them to go down there. They go down there. And then when the period is over, when Herod dies, the angel comes to, to Joseph and says, go back, you're safe. What's their role here? They protect us. They can guide us. Now, I I think they operate still this way today. I just want to add this final summary statement. If you have an encounter with an angel, based on what you learned today, what are some things that you would do to make sure that you're not talking to one that's masquerading and uh, you got the... yes. Uh, you're picking up on Zechariah. So yeah, that's fine. Yeah, li- listen. See if what they say lines up with scripture. Uh, see if what they lines up with scripture. See if what they say points you back to the Lord Jesus Christ for real, clearly. And if what they say or whatever guidance they give to you lines up with what the scriptures say and what the heart of the scripture is, is the Lord Jesus Christ, then yes, you can say, I've had an angelic encounter. Now, I don't think they happen as frequently uh, as, as it seems like they did, but they do happen, and I've, there are people in this room that have already told me that they've had encounters with angels. So the only reason that modern people don't say, I had an angelic encounter, is why? Because we live in a climate today that is so naturalistic and anti-supernatural that if you go around and saying, yes, an angel told me to do X, Y, and Z, I did, and I was safe, and uh, I I just thank God for that, people are going to say, here's the name of my psychiatrist. (laughs) So um, what we have to do is keep the balance of Scripture angelic beings involved in the incarnation. The incarnation would have been either snuffed out or never would have happened if God wouldn't have had angels involved in it. It's central to the biblical story. Uh, and they, they still works the, they work this way in our lives today. Just remember, always, what they say lines up with scripture, what they say lines up and points you back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ah, uh, Yes. One practical question, yes. When, when you were referring to the visit of Mary to Elizabeth and how she stayed there and they studied together the scriptures. Yes. Was Judaism at that time a masculine type of thing? Where did they have access to study the scriptures? Well, remember, her cousin is married to who? A priest. A priest. So he's got access to the texts. Okay, and yes, unfortunately it was, of course you all saw Barbara Streisand and um, Yentl, right? That's what the whole thing is. It has always been in Judaism a hard thing for women who really want to study the Bible to get to it. But in this case, God did what? 
just so happened to arrange the cosmic DNA line in such a way that the mother of the Messiah would have as a cousin a wife of a priest. Isn't that sweet? Yes. Okay, have a great week. See you next week. Oh, if you want to study ahead, read Luke 1 through 4. And uh, we're going to do the temptation next week. God bless.